let's get started by welcoming our guests today. We have Dr. Baldwin Johnson and Bryant Skinner. So Bryant, let's start with the easy softball question. Tell us a little bit about your role here. Yeah, so I am the Director of Forensic Services here at uh, Providence, Alaska, and I am over two departments, Alaska Cares, which is the Child Advocacy Center that serves primarily the Anchorage area, and then also uh, Forensic Nursing Services of Providence, which is the uh, uh, program that serves the adult population of sexual assault and domestic violence. So both of those programs work very collaboratively um, in a team approach. Uh, We're co-located with uh, many uh, agencies, including law enforcement, Office of Children's Services, advocacy from South Central Foundation, which is a native corporation here in town. Uh, so those are my uh, departments and my role is really to just pr- provide leadership and direction for the program and make sure that we can keep our doors open. For very important programs. Thank you. Yes. So Doc, what's your background? What, what brought you here? Um, I'm the medical director for Alaska Cares. So my background is actually as a family physician. So I did primary care for decades um, and um, sort of slipped sideways into doing child abuse work. And that's now what I do full time. Wow. So you both have mentioned Alaska Cares. Uh, tell me a little bit about what that is. So again, Alaska Cares is the child advocacy center that serves uh, the Anchorage area. We also see uh, complex cases from around the state that are brought in, uh, typically uh, medically complex cases uh, that are brought into one of the local hospitals. So Cares is an acronym for Child Abuse Response and Evaluation Services. And uh, we are, again, a child advocacy center. There's approximately 900 child advocacy centers nationwide. Uh, So most of the major metropolitan areas use that model. Um, And so what we do as a team, it's very much a team approach, is when there's an allegation of child maltreatment, we coordinate with law enforcement. Office of Children's Services here in Alaska is our um, child protective service um, state agency. Uh, with advocacy groups, and then obviously on staff we have medical um, medical professionals, mental health professionals. Uh, and the purpose of that is to pr- provide a safe, welcoming space for children to go and uh, talk about what might have happened uh, when there's an allegation of maltreatment. Well, you basically you're talking about partnerships and kind of a, a full team. It's it's a very multidisciplinary approach. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really the foundation of the the Child Ad- Advocacy Center model um, is the multidisciplinary team approach. How that really came about was in the mid-80s. Uh, this model was actually uh, started by a prosecuting attorney down in Alabama. He was seeing cases on the back end when he was prosecuting uh, uh, child abuse cases, and he was finding that children were having to tell their story over and over. Right, um, right. And then when he got, he got uh, you know, finally the case got to court when he was prosecuting, uh, those children were having to go to uh, law enforcement, tell their story, then they were having to go to the emergency department and talk to a medical professional, uh, and then possibly an advocate, then go to the Child Protective Service uh, state agency and talk wow. about what happened. So really the model is, is bringing all of those professionals under one roof right. um, or one coordinated response. So the children um, come to us, and then um, as a team, uh, we have a forensic interviewer, then the rest of the team uh, listens to the interview, and we can work collaboratively to try and limit the amount of interviews. 
and it actually um, creates efficiencies in investigations and um, limits trauma uh, for children. Yeah, you don't want to have to repeat that story over and over to another stranger. You have to go to a different location and tell it to a different person in a different place. And if it's an emergency room, it could be very scary. Absolutely. Right. So what makes then your center a safe place? What makes the kids feel safe? We've done a number of things at the center to make it feel like a safe place for children. Um, so certainly the decor is something mm-hmm. that's warm and welcoming for kids. We've got several different private family waiting rooms so that families okay. have privacy and confidentiality oh, nice. when yeah. they're there. We have s- separate spaces for the forensic interviews. We have a separate suite area for their um, medical evaluations um, are everybody that either interviews and you know and talks to children or that does exams on children for children um, have been highly trained and know how to do that in a way that's not traumatic for kids. Well, the training must be really an important facet because you couldn't make every police officer, every emergency room doctor specifically trained to deal with kids. That's correct, yeah. and that's why it's a specialty. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to add... Um, We have an amazing space, um, and it does feel. I hope it feels safe for children when they when they come in. We've we've got that feedback feedback from people that have come through, but it's also a lot about how the people that work there Mm -hmm. feel for those kids. Um, So we not only worked really hard in designing the center um, and the flow of the center on how families um, interact with the physical space, but we also do um, a lot of work with our team to make sure that we are creating an environment and I'm talking about the people that work there Mm -hmm. that feels safe for children. Um, and I, I think that's for people doing this difficult work, that's infinitely more difficult than designing a building. Um, so that's really ongoing work and making sure people are onboarded correctly. Um, and, um, we are supporting people that are doing this, uh, challenging work every day. And this isn't just a one-time experience for a family or a child. They probably visit you multiple times throughout the course of, of the investigation, I would assume. It, it depends on the situation. For children that do have um, findings on exams, so they have injuries, we will see those children back until we've, um, we're satisfied that their injuries have healed. Um, and our advocates stay in regular contact with the family through whatever legal process might be happening. Um, and then kids are coming back and seeing our therapists, um, which is in a, also co-located in the same building, but in a space across the hall from the rest of the Child Advocacy Center services. I know some of the Child Advocacy Centers across the system have like therapy animals and dogs. Do you guys have that? We do. We have a uh, facility dog. Her name is Kiska. Um, what kind of dog is Kiska? She is, I would say, a mixed breed. Okay, those are our favorite kind. <laughs> Rescues are our favorite kind. She was a rescue. Um, she has a perfect personality for the work, and she's one of the team members. She she not only um, interacts with families when a visit is needed or um or someone identifies that that would be beneficial. Um, she at times will go in uh, into the forensic interview rooms and sit with the children. Uh, and she's also, we find, sort of a therapy dog for the team right, that's doing absolutely. the work. Um, we have certain detectives that like to regularly visit with, with Kiska, so we, we hope that that helps with their resilience as well. Nothing makes you as happy as hanging out with a dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we've talked a little bit about it, but what is the description of an adverse childhood experience? 
So an adverse childhood experience is is essentially when bad things have happened to children. Um, and there, there was a study that was published now 20 years ago about adverse childhood experiences. It was a collaboration between the Centers for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente, which is a health maintenance organization in Southern California in San Diego. So there was this collaboration where they interviewed over 17,000 adults and um, talked to them about things that had happened to them when they were children and then looked at their current health as adults. So some of the findings from that were pretty astonishing to the researchers who conducted this study and um, have have really been pretty impactful, I think, in how we look at chronic disease now. And some of those things maybe that you experience that could be violence in the home, it could be assault, it could be any number of things, even maybe not having access to food. Is that an adverse experience? It's certainly an adverse experience, but it wasn't part of that. Okay. Uh, it, it was, there, there were basically 10 different part or 10 different things categories basically that were evaluated as part of the adverse childhood experience study so they asked about um, um, sexual abuse or sexual assault these these were all things that had happened before the age of 18 Um, episodes of physical abuse um, uh, when you were a child um, emotional abuse which which really had to do with you know being really belittling um, to um, a child. Um, then they looked at a couple of different kinds of neglect. One of them was physical neglect, so that did mean not getting your physical needs met, and so that would encompass food, homelessness, things like that. Okay. Um, and then emotional neglect, so not getting your emotional needs met, not having a parent or a caregiver that was there that let you know that they loved you and supported you. And then there were five different categories of family dysfunction. So those included substance abuse in the home, witnessing domestic violence, Mm -hmm. so seeing your mom get beat up. Um, It included having a family member go to jail, having a family member that was um, mentally ill, and then losing a parent through divorce or separation. So those were the 10 different categories. What was really one of the fascinating things about the study was that your ACE score is what they called it was based on how many uh, how many categories you had experienced so not how many times you'd experienced Got it. Okay. one of those things so not how many times you watched your mom beat right. up but whether or not you had ever seen your mom beat up and if that was the case then your if that was the only thing that happened then your a score was 1 if you had witnessed your mom beat up and you also were sexually abused, and there was substance abuse in your home, and your dad went to jail because he beat up your mom, then your A score was four. Wow, okay, okay. Well, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna pick up this conversation and talk a little bit about what we learned from the ACE scores. We will be right back. Feeling 
we're back with Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and today we're talking about the Alaska Cares Child Advocacy Center. And I just want to give a reminder for people who may be affected by sexual assault or a loved one, help is available by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. So right before the break, we were talking about what the ACE score is. Can we talk a little bit about what we learn from the ACE score results? Yes, yeah, so... Um, what the researchers did was to take a look at um, what that, if there was this correlation between things that had happened in childhood and current adult health. So this 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 group, um, you have to understand that they were mostly that they were middle aged. So I think average age was fifty two. They were folks that were either they or their spouse was employed, which is why they had Kaiser mm-hmm. sure. as their health insurance plan. Most of them had gone to college. They were predominantly Caucasian. Um, and so this was a population that we would normally think of as being a real high-risk population for having had a lot of bad experiences when they were children. But what they found is that the more categories um, of these adverse childhood experiences that people had suffered as children, um, then the more likely they were to end up having a whole host of all of the most common causes of disease in our country today. So people, the higher the ACE score, and, and every single graph, when they graphed it out by ACE score compared to how often they saw a particular disease, the graphs were pretty much all the same. So the higher the ACE score, the more like likely people were to, for example, have ischemic heart disease. So, okay. and, and they found that actually ACE score was a better predictor of risk for cardiovascular disease than all the things that I was trained as a family doctor to ask about. So family history and <clears throat> hypertension sure. and diabetes and all of those things, ACE score was actually a better predictor than your cholesterol. Oh, that's level. interesting. They found the higher the ACE score, the more likely you were to have lung disease. And even when they controlled for smoking, um, whether or not somebody was a smoker, ACE score still correlated better for lung disease. So it was still a risk factor for lung disease, even if you'd never been a smoker. Why is that? Is it lifestyle choices? Is it stress on the body? What is it? That's it's a really good question, because initially the interpretation of the higher the ACE score, the more likely you were to, you know, to end up with one of these diseases and, or more and die of these diseases younger, they thought it was because of lifestyle. Um, and so because it did correlate with lifestyle. So the higher your ACE score, the more likely you were to be a smoker, to be a drinker, okay. to have had IV drug use you know, self-medication to all as a yeah. form, uh, basically as self-medication. Right. They, they were coping mechanisms. Right. They were things people had figured out how to help themselves feel better. However, they also discovered that there were people that had never smoked, never drank. They were marathon runners, you know, sort of the picture of health. And they still ended up getting these diseases more often than somebody who had an ACE score of zero. And they died younger wow. than somebody who had an ACE score of zero. So definitely once you got to an ACE score of four or more, your risk really went up of having a lot of adverse adult health consequences of these adverse experiences as a child. So I assume then that's kind of why we're doing this research and we're, we're doing these tests for kids because we can get ahead of it. So is our, how, basically how are ACE scores changing the way we treat kids? I think the most important thing is, is recognizing that 
um, that there is this impact on both physical and emotional, mental well-being, um, so that there's this opportunity to, to try to make a difference at a much younger age. So the, you know, for for us, for the work that we do, we really work to try to make sure that everybody is able to recognize child maltreatment when it's occurring, and then to educate parents and caregivers and our agency partners about why it's so important to have a better, more efficient, um, uh, and a more knowledgeable response to that trauma at that moment. We're well, the um, some of the you had you had asked why is it that we see these effects even if people don't end up, you know, having bad lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of research um, right now looking at why that happens. And some some of it has to do with how the brain wires itself. Because mm -hmm. our brains are, when we're young, our, our brains are, are wiring themselves and still and developing like the rest of us. And so some of it has to do with the impact of trauma on how the brain wires itself and how the brain grows and develops. Um, some of it has to do probably with impact on genetics. So there's a field called epigenetics where they look at how genes express themselves or don't. Um, that's a huge area of research right now. And they have discovered that children who experience a lot of trauma um, do have these epigenetic changes compared to children that have never been maltreated. Um, and so it it may unmask, trauma may unmask um, genes that cause disease, and they have found those kinds of epigenetic changes. Um, and they may mask protective genes um, that help keep us from getting sick. This is fascinating. I mean, just the way the brain wires itself is, is a whole other episode, I think. Well, you guys have talked about kind of the, the model that you employ, but the child advocacy model is, is really critical to the work you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, one of the most challenging things we face is really the Child Advocacy Center, as I see it, is a place of healing that is surrounded by and integrated with systems of judgment. So we are integrated with law enforcement or integrated with child protective services who their job is to um, make a decision follow the evidence mm -hmm. and then essentially make a judgment call on how to intervene um, for us it's trying to get those systems to buy into the fact that these are very complex situations involving little human beings and family systems mm -hmm. and that we, we should really have a response that um, takes into account a lot of different needs of those individuals and those families, not just the needs of the criminal justice system or um, the child protective system, but there's mental health needs, there's medical needs. Um, they need to have someone walk with them through these processes, which is our advocacy. Um, so I think bringing that model to these complex situations is very beneficial in helping children start that healing process as early as possible. And you said there's 900 centers around the country. Do they all follow the same model? So all of the centers, um, or most of them, are under the National Children's Alliance, which mm -hmm. is a nonprofit organization out of Washington, D.C. And they, they do all the research and put all the standards um, out to the centers that we need to follow. So in general, they, they do follow the similar models. Um, we 
are lucky enough to be co-located in the same building as these other agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of the centers have that luxury. Um, we believe that is would be best practice um, for these centers so that you can collaborate as much as possible when you're responding to these cases. Great. Well, we have to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about Alaska Cares Child Advocacy Center. future of health and today we're talking about the adverse childhood experiences with the alaska cares child advocacy team and we've talked about there being other centers we've talked about the model a little bit but you guys are maybe not unique but you have a really great experience in that you're in a medical setting how does that help the program work for you i think um a, a big strength of being part of a hospital system is that we're able to be very medically based. So we have a medical model. Our medical providers participate in each one of the cases. They um, listen in to the interviews, watch the interviews, so that they can gather as much information as they need to know what kind of things they might expect to find when they do an exam so they know what kind of diagnostic testing that they might need to do at the time that they're doing their medical evaluation of the child. Um, and that's that's quite a luxury because a lot of programs don't have on-site uh, medical, but to be able to integrate right. that medical piece is, is really critical. We do a holistic evaluation of all the children that we see. So all of the kids get at least some kind of medical history, a review of systems, which means we ask about all the different parts of their body, all their different organ systems to make sure everything is working okay. We get their vital signs. We, um, some of the kids don't make any sort of disclosure um, about abuse, and so they may not need a head-to-toe physical. But, but even those kids will do a check-in medically with they and their parents to see if they're having any current symptoms or any current needs. Um, we screen kids for behavioral and um, developmental problems. We screen the older kids that we see for depression and suicidality. Mm-hmm. For those kids that do make a disclosure, we screen them for symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, all of those things, along with our complete medical exam, forensic evidence collection, if it's, if it's indicated with a particular case, all of those allow us to make the very best recommendations for what kind of care this child needs going forward, whether it's medical care or mental health care, you know, whatever it is, it is that this child and family might need, we can participate in those recommendations. And I think it's important to note, too, that you're not just dealing with the child. You're dealing with the family a lot, too. And, and what are the services that you're providing for that family as they're dealing with the child's trauma? 
The, the families absolutely need a lot of support. Some of the families, this might be the first that they've heard that mm-hmm. something bad has happened to their child, so it can be absolutely devastating. We know um, because we do check in with parents that a, a, a significant percentage of parents that we see have their own trauma histories. I was going to ask you that, yeah. And, and many of them have never had any sort of treatment for their own trauma, and so this can really reactivate a lot of that parent's own trauma symptoms when they come in. So providing help and support for that parent can be equally, if not more important, than what we need to do for the child. Because most of the time, this child is going to go home right, to right. their parent. And their parent, if their parent or parents are capable of being that safe, stable, nurturing person in their life, we need to really support that parent so they can be the best parent they can be and protect their child from right. future harm. Right. Well, how are how are kids actually referred to the center? How how do they get to you? So typically, um, there's an allegation of maltreatment. Uh, so a report is made to the to the state. Okay. Uh, so let's say a child's at school and. Uh, a bruise is noticed or makes a concerning statement to a teacher and then the report process starts uh, then the the state agency uh, in our case it's office of children's services uh, would respond um, look at the allegation uh, report to law enforcement what happened and then those state agencies would decide whether or not it should uh, go through alaska cares about 70 percent of the cases we work are are sexual abuse mm-hmm. allegations uh, we see right around a thousand children a year. Wow. Um, the rest of the cases are um, different types of maltreatment, physical abuse, uh, neglect, drug endangerment, witness to violent crime, um, and other other forms of of, of maltreatment. So really, uh, it's a coordinated response, and all of those forensic interviews and, of course, the medical evaluations are happen at our center. So we do also at times uh, accept referrals from the community. Uh, uh, For instance, you have uh, a child that is displaying problematic sexual behavior Mm -hmm. and you find out something has happened with another uh, kiddo that's close to the same Mm -hmm. age. Um, You know, it happened at daycare. So Office of Children's Services says it's out of the home. We're not going to do anything with that. The parents are protective. And law enforcement, of course, with, let's say, two seven-year-olds is not going to investigate that as a crime. Uh, We're able to offer our services to the community to bring uh, that kiddo in and try and and not only offer the medical services and the advocacy, but potentially interview that child to find out um, what is going on, and then sure. and then help uh, help support that family. There's got to be a reason for an over-sexualized seven-year-old. I mean, typically there's a reason behind it. Uh, the system's response to that is is not adequate because they're they're very specific in uh, in their guidelines and the statutes and what they can do. Uh, so we try and provide that service also as a support to our community. Those numbers sound really high to me. Are you on par with the national average? I think we're a, a little higher. I, I think Alaska in general, when you look at statistics, um, unfortunately, are, are, are pretty high. But I also think it just speaks to this program that has been built over sure. a long period of time uh, and the trust that we built in our community and with our partner agencies I think we get uh, cases and being and being uh, medically based as well. Right, right. Uh, I think we get a lot of cases that 
some child advocacy centers would not get. Uh, so I think that contributes to uh, that number as well. Well, how important is it for kids to get help they need early in life? Like this early detection has to be pretty critical. Absolutely. You know, when, when, when during that time of the, during those times of critical brain development, when we can, um, for example, children that are having symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, if, if there can be um, a targeted intervention before those kinds of, of responses get hardwired in the brain. Mm-hmm. So responses that maybe could be protective for that child in the moment, but aren't really productive as adults. So having, for example, a fight or a flight or a, oh, right. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or a freeze response in an adult work setting, for example, is not a, is not a good way to respond. It may be protective for that child um, when they're little. So you want to you want to help kids figure out other ways to be able to deal with the traumatic events in their life before some of those um, uh, less productive ways get hardwired in their brain. Well, what if we don't catch it early? I mean, is it? I mean, how how soon do you need to get help? Like, if it doesn't get caught when you're a child, can you still tr- kind of get help and treatment as an adult? Absolutely. I mean, I spent um, several decades as a family physician, and that was one of the um, really profound things for me when I first learned about the adverse childhood experiences because it it gave me a very different perspective on my patients that were maybe not following my perfectly good advice (laughs) about the lifestyle changes Mm -hmm. they needed to make, um, helping me to understand that those were really their coping mechanisms. And so I needed to look at them in a completely different way. And having those conversations with my adult patients about maybe when these things happened, it really impacted their brain and their health. Um, it, It helped patients um, it helped me not blame my patients right, for being sick, right. and it helped my patients not blame themselves for not having the willpower to give up their cigarettes, for example. Sure. And um, I had patients make just amazing changes um, um, and be really receptive to getting the kind of help that they need to see a therapist, to you know, to um, engage and get other kinds of resources that they needed that they were really resistant to um, until we were able to kind of discover the underlying problems that contributed to their current health. Well, this is a very powerful conversation, and we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit more about the research and then a little bit more about outcomes. This is my heartbeat song, and I'm going to play it. Been so long, I forgot how to turn it up, 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 up all night long. Oh, up, up all night long. You, where the hell did you come from? You're a different, different kind.
And we're back with Future of Health. Well, we're talking about the childhood adverse experience situation. And I wanted to ask you, it seems like many children are still really hesitant to discuss abuse. How do you get them to open up about it? Well, yeah, I think it is definitely challenging. We are dealing with complex situations. Um, Majority of this uh, maltreatment and abuse is happening either in the home or the perpetrator is someone close to the child. So there's a lot of emotions that contribute to a child not disclosing. Um, Perpetrators are also very good about grooming uh, the children that they are abusing Mm -hmm. and so that they, um, they often won't disclose. I, I think it's important to point out that majority of, um, of children either delay their disclosure or uh, people do not disclose about childhood abuse until adulthood. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked about our numbers earlier. Um, I don't see those as uh, particularly high because we know that um, a lot of people don't disclose it's abuse and, yeah. right until they're adults. So um, how we help children disclose the children that come through our, our doors is again just creating that environment where they feel safe um, and try and uh, give them a sense of, of safety mm-hmm. and just a sense that we believe them um, which which is sounds simple but it's, it's really challenging especially when you're working with with multiple, multiple agencies. Um, so whatever we can do to make them feel comfortable and, and, and talk about what is going on with them, uh, that's our purpose. We actually interviewed a, a doc one time who said the number one most important thing you can do when a child tells you that they've been assaulted is to believe them. Is that, you would agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I think there, there's, um, there's, there's been some research to support that as well, that when um, children disclose, a lot of times what they'll do is just test the water a little bit, and they won't tell everything because they want to see what's going to happen when they start to tell. And <clears throat> those children that have a, a supportive um, response from somebody who says, yes, I believe you, thank you for telling me, that those children will often go on to tell a whole lot more about what what they've been experiencing. Um, unlike a child that gets met with, oh, no, grandpa would never do that, right. or so-and-so is such a nice person, I can't believe they would ever do that, and people that don't believe their children um, uh, or believe the kids that disclose to them, uh, those kids, they, they don't tell again. Yeah. I, I I can't tell you how many adult patients that I saw that said that they tried to tell what happened to them. They told once when they were a child and they weren't believed and they never told again until they were 57 and had diabetes and hypertension and, and couldn't give up smoking. How horrible to go through something so awful and then to be finally ready to tell and not be believed. I just, it'd be traumatic. How important is it, though, for people outside of the parents, your teachers, your pastors, whatever, to be involved in helping to identify cases? It's absolutely critical. I brought up um, a scenario where a report came in through the school. Um, They see the kids, many kids, every single day, um, and they're they're seeing this every single day. Um, So anybody in the community, uh, I believe, is a – I at least my hope is that they would report what they're seeing uh certainly in the schools when they when they see these kiddos and um maybe see behaviors that are troubling um especially as the kids get older i think oftentimes 
people see a teenager that's acting out or a, or a preteen and they kind of chalk it up to, well, that's just a teenage moodiness. Right. Um, <laughs> And when in really uh, severe cases, I, I think we need to start with what is possibly going on with this this um, this teenager that is is causing them to run away or um, act in this way, rather than start with um, that's just a teenager being a teenager. Um, I think that's a safer for us as a society. It's yeah. safe for us to go there because you don't have to um, look at the the possibility of some sort of abuse going on, which in general I think just we don't want to see or we don't want to talk about. And, um, and so sometimes I think we, we react to those situations in ways that is safer for us emotionally, Mm -hmm. um, rather than ask the really difficult questions. What are either some of those questions or some of the signs that maybe parents or, or the people who are connected with kids should be looking for or should be asking? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think any acting out, any um, certain sex with younger kids, certain sexualized behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, anything in school, acting out, like I said, uh, running away for older kids, um, behavioral problems, severe behavioral problems. Um, and there's probably Dr. Kathy could answer more of that. Yeah, I think major behavior changes, and you know, especially in in young kids. So kids that were usually pretty outgoing all of a sudden become, you know, very withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids that were usually pretty happy kids that become depressed. Kids that are starting to Mm -hmm. self-harm. So, um, for example, cutting on themselves. Um, You know, kids that are regressing um, in other ways. So, and and I I wish all of these, I wish any of these things were absolutely specific (laughs) to um, child abuse. There can be other explanations and other stressful things that happen in kids' life that can make them um, regress. But, for example, kids that were potty trained and now, you know, they've been potty trained for four years and now they're starting to have accidents Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. You know, that that can potentially be um, a sign. Kids that have unexplained bruising and bruising in places or injuries in places where kids don't usually get injured, um, then that should be a red flag yeah. um, as well. So, Kids with UTIs, I heard that's something that is a red flag. Is that? It's actually kids that might have UTI kind of symptoms, but UTIs in and of themselves are not an indicator. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we clarified that then. So... We've talked about childhood reaction. We've talked about how it impacts your adult. But can you be just as um, affected by witnessing abuse as by experiencing it yourself? Well, witnessing domestic violence is one of the categories of adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Um, in, In regards to resilience, though, how do we develop resilience in young people? I think probably the most important way that kids end up having resilience is having um, grown-ups in their lives that um, care for them and nurture them and love them and are and know that they're going to be there for them no matter what. Yeah. And I, I think important as a program is is we not only help children and do forensic interviews and medical evaluations, but part of what is really important for us is to support those grown-ups we have to help them uh, be healthy and uh, oftentimes uh, try and heal from their own childhood trauma so they they can then support their children I think that's extremely important for the resilience of children 
Well, how do you help your own caregivers, the people who are doing this work day to day? Because it has to be emotionally uh, impactful. Very much. Uh, I mean, vicarious trauma is a real thing, and people deal with that every single day. Um, Everybody deals with that differently, and I think you have to give people freedom to to do that and at the same time offer a lot of different uh, ways of dealing with with that vicarious trauma so a lot of team building a lot of opportunities to debrief a lot of pure check where you um, feel open going to another caregiver Mm -hmm. doing the work and and check in with them and then also leadership um, regularly check in with people so it's really uh, building a culture uh, that allows people to be vulnerable um, and then uh, and just know that it's okay Okay to have vicarious trauma and to be struggle, struggling with that, that and we'll provide as much support as we can to help help people uh, walk through that. Well, it's such an important work, and we can't forget the therapy dog. You get to hang out with the therapy <laughs> dog, right? <laughs> well, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. In a time full of war, be peace in a time full of doubt just believe yeah there ain't that much difference between you and me in a time full of war be peace in a world full of hate be light when you do somebody with the future of health, talking about adverse childhood experiences with the Alaska Cares Child Advocacy Team. So guys, this work is so important. Um, and I know you've you've talked to me off air even about how it's taken so long to move the needle forward. How do we make people aware of this? How do we use the research? How do we start the conversation? I, I do see um, lots of progress, um, especially in the last few years. Um, I, I just remember being really frustrated because when this research was first published, thinking, oh, this is the biggest thing, yeah. you know, in probably 100 years <laughs> since penicillin. It's going to make a right. huge difference. It's going to make a huge difference in our understanding of chronic disease and how we address that. And um, and, and it has taken years and years and years before people have really started having these open conversations because they're hard. Who wants to think about people doing bad things to children? You know, who wants to talk about that? Who wants to think that it could possibly be happening? Um, so it has been, um, you know, really challenging for the word to get out. Um, um, but people are having those conversations. We. We've had uh, a number of screenings. Providence has sponsored a number of screenings of this movie um, that talks about resilience and talks about adverse childhood experiences. And I think that's really helped in the community to increase the conversation. And then a lot of people who are doing this work, whether it's in prevention work or this intervention treatment kind of work like we're engaged in, are having these conversations. The schools are starting to talk about it. You know, um, the Division of Juvenile Justice is talking about it. The Office of Children's Services is talking about it. So really people are having these conversations around the state now and around the country. Is this a movie we can see or we can find? 
Yes. What is it? It's called resilience. Oh. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah. So we've had, um, man, five, six screenings. Yes. Um, and majority of them have been sold out, over 400 oh. people. So I think the communities are engaged in this conversation and, and want to learn more about um, how we can better address uh, this problem, um, even though it is a difficult uh, d- a difficult uh, a topic and really a monumental challenge. Uh, I think communities have the ability to take this on and uh, make a real impact. I think it's important to note, too, that there's a lot of celebrities who are really trying to build awareness to it and talking about what's happened to them in the past and really remove the stigma. I know Common talked about that. He even wrote a song about it, and he was really vocal about I didn't even remember it happened to me as a child. I suppressed it and I remembered it while I was on set of a movie, basically. Um, How important do you think it is for people who have influence to use their voice to bring awareness to it? I I mean, I think it's important for anybody to use a platform to help children. So have it, use it. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that has contributed to some of the increase in reporting. you know, nationwide. It, certainly in Alaska, we've had a, a, a spike in, in reporting. Um, so I think if somebody is willing to put themselves out there and use their story um, to try and uh, help children feel more comfortable coming forward, or victims, uh, not necessarily even children, uh, and talk about what they've experienced and uh, potentially start that path of healing, I think that's a good thing. And I think also to to make it clear that it's not okay. I mean, that's it's really not okay that these things happen, um, whether it's to children or adult victims. Anyone, that, yeah. Well, there's always the business aspect of it too. This, you know, when these events happen to children, when you have these lifelong healthcare implications, there's a big cost, a big cost to it. So, has this research helped us? Has it helped us get upstream of things? What does it look like from a business perspective? I think um, one of the one of the f- potential impacts is um, legislators, for example, understanding the financial impact. So that if we're not supporting programs that help to both prevent child abuse and then to support children and families who have experienced adverse things in 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 their lives, if we if we're not working at that upstream point, then we're paying for it, and we're paying much, much more for it downstream when we're dealing with these long-term health consequences and mental health consequences. And just the pain and suffering somebody has for that entire lifetime, right? And the, the, this, the Centers for Disease Control, because of the adverse childhood experiences, their study, they actually have a whole new research program they're working on um, that's called Safe, Stable, Nurturing Relationships and Environments for Children. So it's really, they really understand the importance of creating these safe, uh, you know, safe, safe families, safe, safe people for, for um, kids so that they either don't experience any of these things or that we we minimize the dose right you know and and so and and then that they have resilience you know going into i wish we could protect kids from every single bad thing that they might experience in their lives and and i know realistically we can't so we want them to face whatever it is as strong as they can be absolutely well 
this is great work that you guys do. Who funds it? Well, I'm Providence, Alaska is very supportive of our program. Um, child abuse response work does not in itself create a lot of revenue. Right. Um, so we have uh, some grant funds that are administered by the state of Alaska. We get uh, direct operational support from South Central Foundation, okay. which is a, uh, a tribal organization uh, that is very uh, collaborative and, and supportive um, of our program. And then, um, and then Providence itself supports our program, um, sees it as uh, a mission-driven program and um, a community benefit. Uh, to to provide these services and and then we have community donors i was just gonna say i know providence is very focused on community benefit and donates a lot of money to the communities but you must need private funding as well yeah and we actually uh since we did move into our center in the uh, brand new uh center the middle of april we're just this year wrapping up a capital campaign so we've had pretty amazing support from foundations like rasmussen foundation conoco phillips um and others that have really stepped up and seen this as a vital service to our community and and decided to support us. Yeah, great. We probably also rely, I guess, on individual donors, right? Or at least you hope, you hope to. So I'm going to go ahead and make a plug for you that if you're listening and you want to donate to this wonderful program, you can visit akcares.org and you can make a donation and it will go straight to the care of these kids, yes? Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to ask you each to tell me... um, what is the one takeaway that you would want people to know from this segment, right? So they know a little bit about the program. They know about the study. What do you want them to know in general about it? Um, For me, I think it's two things. One is that if people are concerned about the possibility of child abuse, they need to report and they need to believe kids who tell them. And then the second thing is that it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult. I think there's always reason for hope um, mm-hmm. there's always the opportunity to get whatever help you need um, so that you can start that healing journey at any point in your life well you you said it's important to report it where do people go to report here in the state of Alaska it's to the Office of Children's Services okay. and we just had a new law enacted that actually for child sexual abuse cases there will be co-reporting to both the Office of, Children, Office of Children's Services and to law enforcement. So kind of exactly how, if that's going to be one common number, how that's going to roll out has yet to be determined. But that is that will be the new law. Is there a statute of limitations on this kind of crime, I guess? For child sexual abuse, I don't believe that there is okay. at this point. Okay. How about you? What do you want people to know? So I certainly echo Dr. Kathy in terms of just there being hope. I know this is a very challenging um, discussion and uh, social problem that we face, but if with early intervention and the, and the proper response, um, there is hope for these children and even adults to get help and, and start the healing process. Also for communities, um, many communities, majority of communities have child advocacy centers um, present. So I think it's important for people to engage with those programs. We very much believe strongly in that model, uh, a model of collaboration and uh, multidisciplinary team response. So I think it's important to engage with those programs. They're the ones doing the work. They're the ones that can help educate um, and can make the connections to all those important organizations. So I think um, 
if you want to make a difference in uh, reducing child abuse in your community, really engage with the Child Advocacy Center. And so there are ways for people then to help. Maybe if they can't donate, they could volunteer. Are there opportunities in that space? Obviously not with the kids directly when you're talking about the abuse, but are there things that they can do? Are there things that people maybe can donate like that aren't monetary? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, every child advocacy center is different, um, but certainly we have people that come forward with um, with stuffed animals, with oh, clothing, right. mm-hmm. um, uh, food, snacks for the kids when they're there. So there's a lot of ways to, to help. Um, and then I know a lot of uh, child advocacy centers rely pretty heavily on community fundraising. So volunteering and fundraising efforts, um, and there's I think there's many ways you could engage. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time today. It is a very hard topic. I know we talked off air. I'm I'm having a hard time with the topic. I'm sure some of the listeners are. So I do want to remind people one more time, anyone affected by sexual assault, help is available for you by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. So thank you, Dr. Baldwin-Johnson and Bryant, for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. For more information, you can visit providence.org and search Alaska Cares. And we look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening.